Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in in Romans chapter 12. I'm going to cover verses 9 through 21 to the end of the chapter. The context is this. In the first eight verses of Romans, Paul exhorted the Romans to present their bodies as a living sacrifice, and he gave them some practical advice on how, on how they could do that, which is mainly take their spiritual gifts and use them in the service of the body. Now, in verses 9 through 21, he's going to give some practical spiritual advice to people on a personal level. It's not going to be a lot of a lot of highfalutin theology in this section, but a lot of encouragement how to live as a Christian. So we start with verse 9 in Romans 12. Love must be without hypocrisy. Detest evil, cling to what is good. Now, love for whom is Paul talking about? Well, it could be love for the brethren. The NIV Study Bible says that's what he's talking about, and I think they're right. It could be love for everyone, including those outside the church. The NIV Study Bible says maybe so, perhaps, but it really doesn't matter. We're supposed to love everybody. The previous verses talked of active service to one another. As the NIV Study Bible talks about teaching, exhortation, leading with diligence, and all that sort of stuff that you do with your spiritual gifts, you serve other people, and it makes sense because love is what you do. It's not what you feel. It's not a fuzzy emotion. Love must be without hypocrisy. Paul mentions this kind of attitude in 2 Corinthians 6, 6, by purity, by knowledge, by patience, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love. And it sort of sounds like there might be some love that's not sincere. Actually, there's no such thing as love that's not sincere, but there's a feigned love. Some people pretend to love you. We all know about that. I remember one time a guy found out I was a trustee of a foundation and had a lot of money in it, a Christian foundation, and he was a Christian minister, and he needed money for his ministry. And, oh, boy, did he start being nice to me until I finally realized what was going on, and it sort of irritated me. That's not sincere love, folks. For example, the gigolo who loves the wealthy woman, that's not sincere love. He loves her money. He doesn't love her. And then, you know, there's lots and lots of examples of that. Paul says, no, don't do not do that. Love somebody sincerely. Don't just pretend that you're a loving Christian. Be one, really. Detest evil. This shows there's nothing wrong with hating as long as what you hate is evil. Nothing wrong with hating evil. Cling to what is good. Hold on to it. We go to Romans 12, verse 10. Show family affection to one another with brotherly love. Outdo one another in showing honor. Now, this translation in the Homer Christian Study Bible is interesting. Show family affection. The other translations say love one another with brotherly love. But this one says show family affection. That's because the Greek is storge, which has the more the idea of familial affection, the love within the family. That means you treat each other even if you, you treat each other well, even if you don't agree, because after all, it's in the family. Blood is blood. We're supposed to love one another like our own family. It's interesting in this one verse, or excuse me, in this passage that we're looking at, not this one verse, but the, there's three different Greek words that are used for love, agape, phileo, and storge. There's four altogether, four Greek words, and there's a myth out there that there's a different kind of agape love as, as, as there is brotherly love. Agape is love for God. Phileo is love for your brother. Folks, let me tell you that is a myth People will not believe you when I tell you this, but I'm telling you, it's the easiest thing in the world to prove. Demas, I have agopied, excuse me, Demas, who has agopied this present world, agopied this present world. And how about when Jesus uses the three words for love when he's talking to Peter, all used in the same context. Do you love me, Peter? Agape, do you phileo me? Do you agape me? It's easy to prove that the words mean the same thing to mean love. So we can't distinguish them out. 
as brotherly love or godly love. However, there's a slight connotation here of family love. So at any rate, show family affection to one another with brotherly love. I imagine that second love is phileo. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's, that's another interesting translation. It's the Homer Christian Study Bible. I actually don't like it as much as the NIV, which says, Honor one another above yourselves. Now, that shows more humility on the part of the Christian. You're supposed to give more honor to other people more than themselves. You start seeking honor in the church, there is nothing more disgusting, more unchristian, more off-putting to other people than trying to be a big shot in your church. And it must be a problem because Paul is exhorting against it. Show honor. As we remember in 1 Corinthians, when he says the members of the body who are not as honorable, the private parts, to carry the analogy further, the parts that have to be covered up because they're private parts. And likewise, you always have people in a church that are not public. They're quiet. They're in the background. They're in the shadows. We're supposed to give them honor, and it's easy to forget them. Not supposed to do that. Philippians 2.3, Paul says this, Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. To honor someone is to value him as a person, as defined by Steve Ackerson. Honor somebody, love him. We go to verse 11. Do not lack diligence, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. The NIV has for diligence zeal, do not lack zeal. Steve Ackerson has a regular thesaurus full of synonyms, do not lack love. Fervor, fire, devotion, enthusiasm, eagerness, keenness, relish, gusto, vigor, energy, and intensity. <laughs> so that's how we're supposed to serve the Lord. Fervent in spirit, Paul says in verse 11. Now, is that fervent in the Holy Spirit? If so, that means your, your fervor would be the kind of fervor that the Holy Spirit provides. Be fervent in the Holy Spirit. That's what the NIV Study Bible takes it. Or it could be be fervent in your human spirit. In other words, in your attitude. In your, how can I say this? Well, that's what we just say in your spirit. Your spirits are up, your, the emotional part of your body, uh, of your being. Be fervent in your emotions and serving the Lord, or is be fervent in the Holy Spirit. Holman Christian Study Bible has a little less spirit, so it's, they take it to be the human spirit. The Greek, of course, is not capitalized, so it's a translator's choice. Here's a scripture along those lines, Ecclesiastes 9.10, Whatever your hands find to do, do with all your strength, because there is no work, planning, knowledge, or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. In other words, while you're alive and not dead in Sheol, plan, work, strength, use your strength, use your knowledge, use your wisdom. Don't ever stop. Christianity is not a lazy man's religion, folks. And so Paul finishes up that verse by saying, Serve the Lord. Our service should be diligent as well as fervent, using those two adjectives in this verse. We serve the Lord with diligence, and we serve the Lord fervently. We go to verse 12 in Romans 12. Paul continues, Rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction, be persistent in prayer. Paul loves to talk about rejoice, rejoicing. In Philippians 3.1, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. He says it twice in one little verse. Romans 5, 2, we have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, Romans 5, 2, Paul says rejoice in hope. In Romans 12, 12, he says rejoice in hope. What is hope? Hope is the confident expectation of the future. You cannot see the future, so it means believing in something you can't say, so it's very close to faith. Faith means in general believing in something you can't see. Hope is something you can't see that's coming in the future. 
that you wait for with expectation, panting for it, if you will. Like the dog sits by the table and looks at you eating that steak, and you just look in his eyes, and he's hoping for it, boy. He's anticipating it. Well, that's what we should be thinking about because our end is in eternal bliss, eternal life, as Jesus called it. And that's ours. And that's why we should rejoice because that's what we have to look forward to. Be patient in affliction. Well, before I do that, let's look at some other scriptures about hope to show that this is a major theme of Paul. Romans 5, 5. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We will not be disappointed by the hope of what God has for us. Romans eight twenty through 25 For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free. We have a confident expectation that the creation will be set free from the bondage of corruption into the glorious freedom of God's children. Just like we're going to be free from sin, the natural world, the created world, nature, is going to be free from corruption. He then goes on to mention the redemption of our bodies, drop into verse 24 in Romans 8. Now in this hope we were saved, hoping that our bodies would be redeemed, risen from the dead, glorified, yet hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? Again, hope is the expectation of the future. You can't see the future. But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. He mentions endurance there, because that which we want is not here right now. In fact, he mentions that in Romans 8. Here in Romans 12, 12, he also mentions being patient in affliction right after he talks about hope. 1 Peter 1, 3, Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope is not dead, it's alive. Hebrews 3, 6, But Christ was faithful as a son over his household, and we are that household if we hold on to the courage and the confidence of our hope. A confident expectation of the future. Glorious things in the future. To be patient means to endure triumphantly, as the NIV Study Bible says. Be patient in affliction. Paul's words about affliction were prophetic because the Roman church in the next decade was to face the wrath of Nero. I think it was about 64 in the mid-60s or so. Nero started persecuting the church. And Paul is writing here in, when is he writing Romans? 53, I think it is, in the early 50s or so, early to mid-50s. I can't remember exactly. And so 10 years later, the church is going to experience the hell of the persecution from the Antichrist Nero, Mr. 666. This, of course, is not to be a surprise. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.12, in fact, all those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He was talking about, about people in Timothy's time. It's happening a lot today. A lot of people being persecuted. And to a greater or lesser degree, all Christians are subject to this, but we need when we're faced with persecution, we need to think of this. Rejoice in hope and endure the affliction. And to be persistent in prayer. It's really easy to quit praying in affliction, obviously. You get discouraged. But this is the absolute worst time to quit praying. You need to keep praying when you're being afflicted. First Thessalonians 5.17, Paul says this. Pray constantly. I love that translation. Pray constantly. Pray without ceasing. I think other translations have it. Romans 12:13 Share with the saints in their needs pursue hospitality of course talking about persecution the saints are going to have special needs in persecution notice that they're called saints he doesn't say share with the sinners in their needs because new testament christians are always called saints they are never called sinners and i know you're going to think of a verse because there's some verses that make you tend to think that a very few overwhelming majority of time christians are addressed as saints and the few times that it looks like they're referred to as sinners. It's a translation problem. They're 
Christians are never referred to as sinners in the New Testament. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Now notice that this sharing, we're supposed to share with people in general, but especially the saints. Galatians 6.10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, we must work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. Especially. We're supposed to take care of the saints. Paul says pursue hospitality. He said, this is mentioned by other people besides Paul. Peter in 1 Peter 4 and 9 says this, Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Hebrews 13.2, don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. Now, I realize back then in the ancient Near East, hospitality was much more important than it is now because they didn't have hotels that you could stay in without getting mugged or killed. And sometimes there weren't any roadside inns at all. It was very dangerous to travel, and so hospitality was extremely important. Adam Clark and James Fawcett Brown make that point. But nonetheless, even today, we should be hospitable to the saints. It's fun to have the fellowship. Romans twelve fourteen. bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Of course, if you're in the world or if you're in your flesh, what's the tendency when somebody starts persecuting you is to curse them. But no, we're not supposed to do that. And this is a, another big theme in the Bible. Let's, let's read some scriptures that show us that we're supposed to bless those who persecute us. Matthew 5:44. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Luke 6:28. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Acts 7:60. This is Stephen. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice. This is as Stephen was getting stoned. Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And saying this, he fell asleep. 1 Peter 2:21 through 23. And by the way, you can pray that way, but I'm not sure that God answers that prayer. I think God's justice is going to take care of people who killed Jesus and killed Stephen to do things like that. But still, our attitude should be, ah, oh, Lord, we're not going to take any personal vengeance on this. First Peter 2, 21 through 23. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin. And no deceit was found in his mouth, but when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was suffering, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. First Peter 3, 9, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing since you were called for this so that you can inherit a blessing. Luke 23:34. then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. This is when Jesus was on the cross. 1 Corinthians 4.12, Paul says, We labor working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. Now, of all people, Paul knew what it meant to be persecuted. You read the book of Acts, he was persecuted constantly, and he said, I just put up with it. He doesn't spend his time eating himself up with hatred and revenge. This thing about blessing when you're being cursed, he mentions it twice in this little short verse. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. It's so important he mentions it twice. Blessing is defined by Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown as to call down by a prayer a blessing on. In other words, Lord bless AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She hates you, she hates the gospel, but bless her anyway. Bless her. Bless those who persecute you. They were persecuting Christians in Paul's day. Well, today they're persecuting Christians all over the world. Islamists, Buddhists. Hindus, communists, dictators, evolutionists, secularists, LGBT fanatics. On and on and on it goes. People are out for Christians. It's all right. We're not supposed to hate them back. Now, here's a good quote from Booker T. Washington. He's one of my favorite Christians. 
he of course was a slave and was freed. And he spent the first night. I think I read his biography. He spent the first night, or shortly after he was released from slavery, he was wandering around. I think he was looking for relatives. He ended up sleeping under a porch step somewhere, and he came from absolute poverty because he didn't have anything. Hardly anybody had anything after the Civil War, especially a freed slave. And he was a Christian, and he of course became a well-known. Uh, leader of the black race in the South. Of course, now people call him an Uncle Tom, naturally. That's one more example. You're a Christian. Somebody's going to come up with bad names for you. But he was a great guy. And this is what he said. Quote, I will not allow any man to make me lower myself by hating him. And he had good reason to hate people. You know, an ex-slave, I'm sure somebody treated him bad somewhere. But I will not allow any man to make me lower myself by hating him. Just refuse to, just refuse to hate people. I remember a guy robbed me of $300,000, and somebody called me up and said he had a word for me. He said, forgiveness. And, of course, he, my friend knew the story about how I'd gotten robbed of all that money, and he thought I needed to forgive this guy, but he didn't realize that I was having trouble with somebody else. I'd already forgiven the guy that robbed me. It's not as hard as you think it might be. I mean, it's hard, I'm not saying it's easy, but if you pray about it, God will give you that same attitude he had toward his persecutors, and you need to forgive people. Because you'll eat yourself up and ruin your life. Same thing you got a, if you're a girl that had a boy that treated you bad, and there are lots of idiot men out there that just treat women horribly, well, don't spend your life hating them. I could say the same thing about girls that treat guys bad, too, the same thing. Don't spend your life hating that girl that's, that, that did you wrong. Life's too short. I remember watching a movie one time about a man in his 60s. He was plotting with some other people to bump somebody off. And it turns out in the course of the dialogue that this man had had a family member or a friend, I was probably a family member, killed when he was a teenager, when he was very young. And here he was, 60 years old, and he'd been waiting all his life. He had a good job. He was living a normal life. He didn't commit any crimes, but he had one thing in mind. I'm going to get this guy. Revenge. It's a terrible human emotion. And that's why I believe in capital punishment, because when you don't execute murderers, and those murderers get away with it. The people, the victim's family will spend all their life thinking about revenge, and pretty soon you've got blood feuds going on. Romans 12:15, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Now, you notice it doesn't say rejoice with those who weep. And, th- and what I mean by this is you go up to somebody who's suffering and you say, Oh, praise the Lord. Isn't God wonderful? He'll get you out of this mess. Hallelujah. You know, and, and people don't like that. There's a good proverb. I wish I could remember that proverb, but. People who do that, <laughs> the, the proverb says, no, don't do that. People hate it. I, I don't have it with me. But no, this is not, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to weep with those who weep. If somebody's crying, cry with them. Try to feel their pain if you can. And of course, if somebody rejoices, don't get jealous of them. Oh, God does wonderful things for everybody else, but he doesn't do anything wonderful for me. No, we're not supposed to be jealous of other people's happiness. We're supposed to be happy for them. We move on now to Romans 12, verse 16. Paul says this, Be in agreement with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Don't be proud. You're in high school. You're a big shot. You're one of the popular people, and you're not going to associate with that nerd over there at the lunch table in the cafeteria. Uh -uh Uh-uh-uh. If you're a Christian, you can't do that. You're supposed to associate with the humble. You're supposed to associate with that nerd at the table. Do not be wise in your own estimation. It's all right if other people think you're wise, but if you think you're wise, there's always somebody smarter than you are, so just get over it. 
Paul says, be in agreement with one another. Other translations say, be in harmony with one another, like NIV, ESV. The NASB says, be of the same mind toward one another. But just basically means get along with one another. Now, when it says be in agreement with one another, does that mean have the same judgments about, say, politics or theology or philosophical beliefs or lifestyle beliefs or life philosophy and all that kind of stuff? You know, people are different. Let's face it. People live their lives differently. That's not what Paul was talking about. Because if he was, we would never be in agreement with one another. You can find two people who love the same college football team, and they'll find a thousand other different things to disagree about. So John Gill denies that it means to have the same doctrines. What John Gill affirms is that we're, Paul is exhorting us to have the same love, the same accord, the same affection for each other. In other words, be in agreement with one another in love. Be in harmony. When Paul says, do not be wise in your own estimation, he could be reflecting the attitude of Proverbs 3, 7. Don't consider yourself to be wise. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Don't think you're, you're so smart. We go to verse 17 in Romans 12. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Try to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. Now, repaying evil for evil is just another word for vengeance. And, brother, if there's anything that the Bible condemns is vengeance, taking vengeance, revenge. It's an absolute no-no. It's like adultery. You don't do a little bit of vengeance. You don't do a little bit of adultery. Once you've stepped over the line, you have sinned. No revenge. To pay back evil for good is satanic. To pay back evil for evil is human. To pay back good for evil is divine. Let me read that again. To pay back evil for good is satanic. To pay back evil for evil is human. Everybody does it. But to pay back good for evil is divine is godly. I don't know where I got that from, but I like that. Now let's look at see what the scripture says about re- vengeance, repaying evil for evil. Matthew 5, 39 through 42. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. This is Jesus in the Sermon on the, uh, on the Mount. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Jesus is talking about revenge here, private revenge. And let me point out here, he is not talking about the state punishing criminals. The Sermon on the Mount has absolutely nothing to do with that. If it did, it would violate, it would contradict the scripture. In Romans 13, where Paul says, God gave the state the sword to take care of evildoers. So this has nothing to do with civic justice. This is talking about private revenge. We're not supposed to try to get back at people. It's also not talking about self-defense. If you have to slap somebody on the face because they're molesting your wife, well, slap them on the face. I mean, Jesus himself, when he was being tried, he was slapped on the cheek, if you recall. And if you recall, he didn't turn the other cheek. He was in a judicial trial. And I think his words were, hey, you got something against me? Tell me what it is. Tell me, give me your proof that I did something wrong. He didn't turn the other cheek and just say, hey, slap me again. So we, everybody, it's amazing how many people miss the point of this passage. The point is, is you don't have private revenge. In fact, we're supposed to pray for the people who slap us on the cheek. Pray for those who spitefully use you. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. If, if, it, if Unless it's a matter of self-defense and if somebody takes your shirt and coat away and it hurts your family or something, you know, well, that's something else. But as far as you personally, just do without it. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. All right, so we read in Matthew 5, 44 through 45. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Pray for him. Now, this is a hard thing to do. 
Like, for example, pray for the LGBTQ movement who slander Christians as homophobes and haters and bigots and all the crap that they come up with every day. You can oppose them politically, as I do, and oppose them morally, as I do, oppose everything about them. But the individuals in the movement we're supposed to pray for. And I say the same thing is for the Ku Klux Klan, for the Communist Party, Xi Jinping's people in China, all these evil groups that are in, and movements that are out there. If they happen to be on your case, you're supposed to pray for them. Now, that is an ethic that not many religions or philosophies in the world that I know of advocate. And when people see that sort of thing, I remember uh, hearing a story about um, Corey Ten Boom. And she was in South Carolina talking and going around, and a bunch of Christian women were going to her meetings, and my mother was one of them. And my mother heard the story about how she was in a Nazi prison camp in World War II, and this Nazi prison guard just treated her terribly. I can't remember what he did to her, beat her or something. I don't remember. It was horrible. And just by chance, she's going around giving her talks. After the war, she was a very accomplished speaker and written a lot of books. And doggone if that Nazi prison prison guard didn't show up in the audience. And she was filled with revulsion and hatred, naturally. And uh, immediately, if I remember the story correctly, she had to check herself. And she went over there and, and talked to him. And and, and, and she said, and, she, and finally she said, look, I forgive you for all that. Let bygones be bygones. It's a great story. I'll tell you another story in my hometown. There was uh, a godly man. He was in his 70s. He was old, been a Christian all his life, well known for his Christianity. And he had a godly wife in her 70s. And she was raped. And, and this, this couple was a white couple. And she was raped by a black guy. And, you know, that's ooh, that's bad business. You know, a lot of people get have, have deep insecurities about that sort of thing. This, it just couldn't be any worse. So and he was a young guy. And so this old man whose wife had been raped goes down to the jail cell, goes into uh, into the room, in, well, into the, at the cell where the rapist was. He says, I want to talk to you. I just want to tell you, I forgive you in the name of Jesus Christ for what you did to my wife. And that story, I've never forgotten it. It's kind of famous from where in the town that I was born in. And this is the sort of thing you'll say. I just gave you two stories of it. You got to forgive people who persecute you. It makes a powerful impression on people when they see it. First Thessalonians 5.15, see to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone. No one does that. See to it. If you see somebody trying to get revenge on somebody, rebuke them for it. Say, no, you can't do that. Always pursue what is good for one another and for all, including your enemies even. First Peter 3.9, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult. But on the contrary, giving a blessing since you were called for this so that you can inherit a blessing. You want a blessing? Pray good things for the people who who screw you or who persecute you. I remember that guy that robbed me of $300,000. I started, I prayed for him, especially since he claimed to be a Christian. Now, I mean, you know, I prayed for him. He ended up in jail, spent five years in the slammer. It ain't hard to pray for people like that. Just say, hey, we're exhorted to do that. You know, all these verses I read, we're supposed to do that. Now, Paul in verse 17 of Romans 12 says, Try to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. This is Holman Christian Study Bible. Try to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. Other translations have, Be careful to do what is good. That's NIV. The ESV says, Give thought to do what is good in everyone's eyes. The Greek word is pronoeo. Pro means before, and noeo means to think. So think before. Take thought in advance. Think before you do something. 
Don't let your actions come in the spur of the moment, especially in response to evil things done to you. So be able, think in advance so that you're able to give blessings instead of curses. Now, that honorable and what's honorable in everyone's eyes, Paul is probably not talking generally, but he's talking specifically about repaying evil for evil. He says, do the honorable thing. Let it go. Now, we have to see what it means to be honorable in everyone's eyes. There's two options to, as to how we can interpret that. It could mean we do what all men consider to be honorable so that we let other men determine what is honorable. Do what is right. Do what is honorable as far as everybody else is concerned in everyone else's eyes. Or it could mean do what we know is honorable so that other men see it. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says that's the way to go on that. Do what is honorable, and as we do what is honorable, everyone's it, that honorable thing will be seen in everyone else's eyes, so we decide what is honorable. Now, that's a subtle point, but let's face it, sometimes people have codes of honor that we as Christians can't go along with. You know, there's honor among thieves. Thieves have a code of honor, but we can't, we can't do what's honorable in their eyes. We have to do what's honorable in our eyes as Christians. And generally, they overlap. Generally, what we think is honorable, the average person in the world thinks is honorable, too, because of common grace. But at any rate, don't pay back evil for evil. Now, let's look at this idea of, of behaving honorably before other men. It's extremely relevant because of all the scandal and the moral failures that you see in these big-name ministries that cause all kinds of persecution and ridicule of the Christian church. It's just horrible. But the Scriptures warn us that we're supposed to behave honorably before the world before non-believers. Matthew five sixteen. in the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Proverbs 3, 1 through 4. My son, don't forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commands for they will bring you many days of full life and well-being, etc., etc., etc. Verse 4, then you will find favor and high regard in the sight of God and man. So in the sight of man, you will find favor and high regard. So we're not only persecuted sometimes, sometimes people look at us favorably. We don't know. First Peter 2.12, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that in a case where they speak against you as those who do what is evil, they will, by observing your good works, glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, people think bad things of you, but it's hard to say bad things about people who are doing good things. I just talked to this morning. Uh, I'm in America now, and I had a masseuse for about three or four years uh, who finally, after several years, became a Christian. She was not a Christian because she said she, there was a Christian in her little country neighborhood that didn't take care of his parents, and that is a no-no for Chinese traditional people. But she was quite upset about it, and she didn't like Christians. So I told her, I said, well, why don't you pray that if God is real, if Jesus is real, he'll reveal himself to you. And so she did, unbeknownst to me, because I forgot about it, because I didn't think she was going to do it. And about a year later, she told me she was a Christian. I said, you're kidding me. How did that happen? She said, well, she had prayed that way, and everywhere she met, all of her customers were Christians. All of her massage customers were Christians, and they were so nice. And they behaved so honorably before her that, she, you know, that she decided she's going to believe. So... 1 Peter 2.15, for it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people. How? By doing good. And that will shut people up. Just do good to them. It's hard to hate people who are doing good to you because most people don't act that way. 1 Peter 3.15.16, but honor the Messiah as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. However, do this with gentleness and respect, keeping your conscience clear so that when you are accused, those who denounce your Christian life will be put to shame. 
So you keep your conscience clear so nobody have something to accuse you with, so they don't have a club to beat you over the head with. Ah, you've been shacking up with your secretary. Why am I supposed to listen to you? Oh, you cheat people. You leave lousy tips at the restaurant. Why do I need to be a Christian? We go to Romans 12, verse 18. If possible, on your part, live at peace with everyone. Now, peace is a highly valued quality in the kingdom of God, in the church. Here's some scriptures, Matthew 5, 9. The peacemakers are blessed, for they will be called sons of God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 13. And to regard them very highly in love because of their work, be at peace among yourselves. Peace is nothing better. Colossians 3.15, and let the peace of the Messiah to which you also called in one body control your hearts. Be thankful. Ephesians 4.3, diligently keeping the unity of the Spirit with the peace that binds us. So we are bound together in bonds of love and bonds of peace. Now you say, well, that's nice. I want to do that all the time. Well, you can't because sometimes some other people that you're dealing with don't want peace. And Paul acknowledges that possibility because he says in verse 18, Romans 12, if possible, on your part, live at peace. In other words, you don't do anything to cause strife, but sometimes it might be the other guy causes strife. On your part is translated by the NIV and the ESV as so far as it depends on you. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. In other words, you do everything you can to keep peace, but hey, if somebody attacks you and insists on persecuting you, you might have to fight back. I mean, you know. You're not supposed to pursue peace at any price. Sometimes, many times, evil has to be confronted. It's the other person who causes the lack of peace, and you can't control what that other person does. As John Gill says, quote, There are some persons of such tempers and dispositions that it is impossible to live peaceably with. And that's the honest-to-goodness truth. We go to Romans 12, verse 19. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. That's the same thing as not paying evil for evil. Where did he say that? In verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. And verse 19, two verses later, he says, friends, do not avenge yourselves, which is the same thing. Instead, leave room for his, that's God's wrath. God will take care of it. For it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. I'm going to pay him back. You don't need to do it. This is a quote because Paul says it's written where? Deuteronomy 32:35. Vengeance belongs to me. I will, will repay. In time, their foot will slip, for their day of disaster is near, and their doom is coming quickly. I think about all those Chinese Christians that are undergoing the persecution from those persecuting, voracious, nasty, filthy communists that are running Beijing now. In time, their foot's going to slip, and their day of disaster is near. They're going to they're gonna get theirs. Here's another proverb that says the same thing, Proverbs 20, 22. Don't say, I will avenge this evil. Wait on the Lord, and he will rescue you. And, of course, not taking revenge. We've already talked about in verse 17 of the Sermon on the Mount, turning the other cheek, don't repay evil for evil, and so forth, is all in the Sermon on the Mount. Verses 44 through 45 of Matthew 5, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, notice Paul says in verse 19, Romans 12, he says, Do not avenge yourselves. He didn't say, well, he didn't make this a conditional statement. This is an absolute unconditional statement. We are absolutely never, no matter what, to take revenge. And like I said, it's like committing adultery. Once you do it, you've sinned. If you do just a little tiny bit of adultery, you've done it. And if you do just a little bit of revenge, you've sinned. Revenge is a absolute no-no. Now, of course, I, I make this caveat again. This is referring to private retaliation, private retaliation, and has absolutely nothing to do with secular or ecclesiastical 
ecclesiastical judicial actions, as John Gill points out. I mean, after all, we're supposed to kick people out of the church if they're sleeping with their stepmother. Paul suggested that to the Corinthian church when the guy was sleeping with his stepmother. And I can see him now defending himself. Ah, Jesus said, turn the other cheek. You can't kick me out of church. Well, of course not. It has nothing to do with that. Now, it could be that Paul has some, this is speculation, but it could be that Paul was referring to Claudius's edict that all Jews must leave Rome. Claudius left office in 54 AD, and he took it in office in 46, I forgot exactly, but somewhere in the mid-40s. So right around that time, he gave an edict that all Jews must leave Rome, a sort of anti-Semitic edict there. And of course, Christians would probably have been confounded with Jews, and so people lost their homes. They, had to, they were exiled. That's why Aquila and Priscilla ended up in Corinth, by the way, as it says in Acts 18 too, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome, and that could be what Paul's talking about. Don't get mad at the Roman Roman government. And there's also a pragmatic approach to this thing, too. You start fighting back against unjust governments pretty soon, you're going to bring their, their arm of the law down on you, and you're going to cause all kinds of scandal on the church. You're going to get a bunch of Christians thrown in jail, so don't provoke these guys. Now, notice the emphasis on not avenging one another, but notice also that one of the reasons we can rest easy in that is because God is going to take care of the punishment. God is a just God. His wrath will come and judge the sin. So we just need to wait patiently. God wants to give sinners time to repent. If they sin, fine. He's very patient with sinners. A lot of Christians spend their whole life sinning and get saved at the very end. I've I've heard of several that have done that. In fact, I prayed for a guy that was in his 90s in a hospital in Shantou, China. And the sister called me up. They think, you know, they think foreigners can pray better than Chinese people. You know, I just profit without honor in his hometown. You know, you're an expert if you're from over the sea. So this person called me up. I didn't know him very well. I didn't know the man that was in the hospital. But I said, sure, I'll pray for him. So I prayed for him. And doggone, if the guy didn't get saved, he died two or three days later. But he got saved. So God waited that, that man sinned all of his life. God gave him a lot of time to repent. Verse 20 of Romans 12, Paul continues, But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. So Paul continues with his idea of loving your enemy. And Now this is more than just not taking an evil action against your enemy. This is actually doing good to your enemy. This is blessing your enemy instead of cursing him. If you think about it, there's two two levels of how to deal with your enemy in a good fashion. One is just don't go after him with revenge. And the other is actually go even further than that and do something good for him. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you'll be heaping fiery coals on his head. Now, this is probably an allusion to Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. What does that mean, to leave burning coals on somebody's head? Well, the way I've, in fact, I think a lot of people take it this way. It says, ah, you want your revenge? That's how you can get coals on the head of your enemy. Just give him some food, and you make him feel real bad. But now, <laughs> if you do that, what are you doing? You're, you're exhibiting the exact opposite temper of what Paul is speaking of, as John Gill points out. He's speaking of forgiveness, not vengeance. And if you do good to somebody so that God will punish that person and make him miserable, well, then you're hoping for a bad to come on that person. And that's not what Paul's aiming at. So I don't think that's what it is. Another, The other option, which I think is correct, this is from the NIV Study Bible. Steve Agerson and Adam Clark say this. The coals that are on this person's head 
stand for the conviction which might lead to his repentance. He might feel the heat of God, if you will, on his head saying, oh, God, oh, God, I've sinned. I need to repent. I did evil to this person, and they're, and they're saying good things to me now. They're showing me love. Oh, my gosh, I, I feel horrible, just like you feel would feel horrible if fire coals were on your head. Here's a quote from Martin Luther. God converts those whom he does convert by showing them goodness. It is only in this way that we can convert a person, namely by showing him kindness and love. If anyone is converted by love, then the whole person burns against himself, for he detests himself with the greatest vehemence. Therefore, benefactions shown to an enemy are coals of fire. There's a third option, which I don't believe, mentioned by Steve Atkinson, that it's literally talking about coals for a fire. In other words, if your fire went out, you would go to a neighbor's house and get some burning coals, and then you would then take them home in a jar carried on your head. And so the idea here is if your enemy is hungry, needs some food, you give him food, but he's got to have, have to cook, cook the food. And so then you give burning coals in a pot and put on the person's head so he can come bring those coals to cook the food. I don't think that's what it is. That's an interesting, interesting take, but I don't believe that's it. We go to verse 21, the last verse in chapter 12. Paul says, do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. And I'll just finish this up by quoting Steve Ackerson. As soon as one retaliates, he is conquered. As soon as one retaliates, he is conquered by evil. But you conquer evil with good. You get people not to come after you anymore. Not all the time, but lots of times you, you, you blunt their anger towards you by showing them mercy and kindness and blessings. Ladies and gentlemen, we have finished Romans 12. In our next chapter, we will discuss submission to the political authorities the judicial authorities, and fulfilling the law through love. Hope you stay tuned for that audio, and hope you enjoyed this one.